Hello everyone and welcome to episode 357 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre where we have an awesome writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with A.L. Tate, who I know as Alison Tate, but A.L. Tate is the author of the wonderful new book, Tell Us About It. Tell us about it. I love the way you do that. <laughs> Throw My new out. book is called The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. And it is the story of a maid named Maven and a Reeve, a Reeve, a squire <laughs> named Reeve, who meet on the very first day at Renart Castle and then have to band together to find a missing dazzling jewel in just three days or they will lose everything. And if you want to hear the first chapter read by Al, it is in episode 356 as part of our Story Sessions series. Anyway, how are you, Al? I'm okay. I survived Book Week. Um, I did my first face-to-face. So many um, kids everywhere. Author talks for months and months and months. That was a bit challenging because it's been a long time since I've had to actually sit in front of people and talk about stuff for hours on end. Um, Mm. But yeah, no, it was great. It was really, really good. I I, I very much enjoyed it. It's very strange having book week in October. Uh, Usually, Mm. obviously, it's in August and, you know, there's a whole lot of razzle dazzle and razzmatazz around it. Um, So it was a bit of a strange one this year, but I did a few things via Zoom and I, you know, went to Sydney and did some author talks and. Um, it was just reminded me, you know, what it, what it feels like to be an actual author again. So that was exciting. Yes. <laughs> what was the most common costume that you observed? Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. because you can get great, um, like this oh, yeah. off the off the shelf, you know, Hogwarts mm. robes, bit of a wand, off you go. You're in business, yes, you know. Yes. So. There was a lot of Harry Potter wandering around. Um, there was also, because I did sort of like talks with grades five and grade six, so grade five, they're still quite happy to dress up. Grade six, they are not. Mm. And by that stage, they are pretty much wearing uh, normal clothes and then pretending to be a character out of a book, a contemporary, right. co- you know, anything, you know. <laughs> so anything where they wear normal clothes. So there was a lot of hoodies as well. Right. Well, I seem to see 1,000 million children uh, and 1,000 million, right? Yes. Well, in my local area, in my mm. neighbourhood, and without a doubt the most common uh, costume was Where's Wally? Oh, you had a lot of Where's Wally's? Where, like everywhere. There where's were Wally? no Wally's at the schools I was at, only really? the teachers. There was one Where's Wally teacher. The teacher costumes are brilliant. So the, the, <laughs> um, the librarian Penny at uh, Epping, primary school where I was on on Wednesday um she was all dolled up like Mary Poppins she looked amazing oh, wow. like it was fantastic yeah That's um so so the, and then there was uh, all of the I think grade five teachers were dressed as Oompa Loompas oh that's and, great yeah like the the teachers are, are fantastic like it's it's a very fun thing uh, but yeah no wallies only one of the teachers that I saw was in a in it was in a wally outfit there was right. uh one gentleman at the school at a school that I was at who was all dolled up like the queen of hearts out of Alice oh, in Wonderland which was fabulous um so yeah you know there's there's um there's a lot of of planning goes into these sorts of outfits which I oh, think yeah. is, I love to see it though I, I I you know it's one of those things I'm you're very torn as a parent and I know a lot of parents really dislike book week because mm. you know it's just one more thing to do Stressful. but 
Well, I know, but it's not supposed to be stressful. It's no. only stressful if it becomes a competition. And that's to right. me, it's like, you know, anything that celebrates books and reading and gets kids into the world's you know, that are created by authors can only be a good thing. Like it's the one day of the year at generally at a school where books are like reading for fun and pleasure yeah. is at the, the forefront. It's the focus. So, you know, like I understand because obviously I have, you know, two two sons mm. who, you know, now at 16 and 13 are not dressing up for book week. <laughs> um, but, you know, we had, you know, I went through years and years and years of it and I had one son who just – you know, embraced it and, you know, every single year wanted to be some outlandish thing. Sherlock Holmes was in grade one was my personal favourite because yeah. trying to find a deer stalker and a, and a yeah. you know, and a, and a jacket um, that would fit a six-year-old oh was fairly amusing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then I had one son who wanted to wear a soccer outfit pretty much every single year because he oh. just wasn't really into, he didn't want to do cloaks and, you know, all that. Although, mind okay. you, by grade six, by grade six, he decided his last book week, he went all out. He was the full cloak. He was boots. He was a sword. He wow. was the whole Yeah. So he, he really bucked the trend. He was a soccer uniform the whole time and then suddenly decided to get his cloak on. But who uh, is you know, the character in the soccer uniform? Oh, you can be like you could be Timmy. Um, from, oh, you know, okay, the, like yeah. there's various ones. Like there, there's a whole mm. bunch of series. You know, that's the that's the other thing I always say to parents yep, is yep. have a look at those series because you can mm. pretty much wear a footy uniform and be <laughs> a character. You know, it's not hard if yeah. you if you sort of don't get too competitive about it. But um, yeah, and my my advice is always, as always, every single year we have this conversation is get a cloak because if you've got yes. a cloak, you can put any shirt under it and be a different different character. Um, yes. But yeah, anyway, so that's my that was that's what I've been doing, and as you can tell, there you go. Book Week looms large in my life right now. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, All what right. about you? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Mm, this weekend, I have my first cello lesson. Oh, you know what? I I vaguely recall seeing a tweet. Where can I hire a cello? <laughs> And it was one of those things I just thought, you know, it was like a late night thing and I thought, what is she doing now? And then I went to bed and forgot all about it. But, no, you have, of course, hired the cello and you are now having cello lessons. Of course you are. Of course you are. What else would you be doing? What happened to the the songwriting? You've moved on. Oh, yeah. Well, that's sort of in the background. I think the thing that I, I really conquered my fear on that one because I literally thought it would be humanly impossible for me to write a song, not the words, but the music. Mm-hmm. And after doing those courses and realising, oh, there's a formula. Oh, you just follow the rules. Not that I'm winning any Grammys or writing any songs, but I got over that that thing thinking, oh, it's completely impossible, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I'd still love to do it at some stage, you know, more, but uh, it's been overtaken mm. by, the by my new love. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I picked up my new cello last night um, and, yes, I have hired it, uh, but they gave me a new one. So that's good. If I do like it, you know, I can potentially buy it. Who knows whether that's going to occur or not. And I um, put it out on Facebook to find a cello teacher and fortunately found one just down the road, which is fantastic. And time will tell as to what's going to happen with this. It might either go the way of, you know, painting and art and be really embraced or it might go the way of macrame and... <laughs> 
Do you remember? Was it a couple of years ago that you were macrameing scarves out of Mm. the dog fluff? Oh no, I'm not. I don't macrame dog fluff. (laughs) You were doing something with dog fluff. You were collecting dog fluff. You were going to spin it. It's sorry. Sorry. And I didn't macrame it. It's. I'm collecting it. You were spinning it. it. No, I'm not going to spin it. I'm going to felt it. I'll felt it. But you need enough. <laughs> and I only collect the really good bits. Are you still collecting cat hair? Yeah, yeah, there's a drawer. Oh, <laughs> I want to make an iPad cover because oh. I've got this book. It's a really good book called Crafting with Cat Hair. Anyway, we digress. We should probably <laughs> go back. <laughs> What's How do we go? Where do we go from crafting with cat hair? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a really good book. <laughs> you can oh. make like finger pu- you can make all sorts of things in this book but I'm going to make an iPad cover <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay Al okay. calm we down we do on. need we to need move to... on <laughs> let okay. us move on well speaking of cats and dogs we have this really great link it's actually on the Australian Writers Centre blog and it's this fantastic story about the Story Dogs program which is uh, <clears throat> you've calmed down yet <laughs> I'm trying so hard to be serious but I'm not coping anyway no Story Dogs are very serious let's talk about yes them. it's beautiful and it's uh, founded by two Australians Janine Sigley and Leah Sheldon and they read about this reading program uh, some reading programs in the America called Sit Stay Read and another one called Reading Education Assistance Dogs that's an acronym for read R-E-A-D and basically people go uh, people take dogs into schools and the kids read to them read aloud to the dogs and it's adorable because it really helps you know, children who may find it difficult for other reasons because of learning disabilities or shyness or whatever, and they get to read in a relaxed environment with a friendly puppy. And how cool is that? It's oh, very cool. Our local library runs wonderful. a Story Dogs program. Really? They, uh, Yeah, they do. Um, they generally use smaller dogs than the Labradors that you have um, or Golden Retrievers or whatever they are yes. that you have in the photos in the post on the Australian Writers' Centre blog. Mm. But, yeah, they use them um, They use them for these reasons because, you know, uh, lots of kids don't like reading out loud because they're worried yeah. about you yes. know, how, how they sound. And, you know, as we know, dogs are uniformly adoring of anything yes. that you do particularly yes. if it involves you sitting next to them and and snuggling so yes. you know they it works it works incredibly well yes absolutely and the dogs sit there and they listen and they learn all these new words i just think it's a, adorable and i think also very much needed especially <clears throat> with some of the recent naplan results that have been reported um but yes if you <clears throat> want to look at the um the story <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Uh, it is on the Australian Writers Centre blog. Um, also, you have a great link for us, don't you, Al, from the Writer Unboxed website. I do, and the main reason for me to to talk about this link is because it, it it's so kind of like outside my comfort zone. Um, mm. So this post is called Seven Ways to Make Early Morning Writing a Reality." Yeah. Um, now I know that there's a little group on Twitter called the Six AM Writers Group uh, that Ooh. I am friends with several of them. You know, as far as you know, Twitter goes, and Who I see them every people? day. Pardon? 
who are these crazy people? I, I completely have had an absolute <laughs> synapse on any names, but if you look at <laughs> hashtag 6am writers, they're there. Mm. And mm. you often see them like, is anyone else here? But, you know, obviously I see these tweets about four hours later when yeah, I'm on right. Twitter, but there they mm. are, 6am every day. They have a little group. It's an accountability thing so that, you know, if you're there, then someone else is probably going to be there with you, which is, I think, a great thing. Um, and the the, it's a probably a cornerstone, I think, of making early morning writing work. Um, and in this post on writerunboxed.com, um, it's, it's a post written by uh, Kevin Liebird, and it's one of the most important things he says is that if you want to start writing early in the morning, you do need to be accountable. Um, so Kevin tells his wife that he's got to get up no matter what, and she harasses him, you know, every every single day that he doesn't actually manage to do it. Um, so, but the reason that I find this so fascinating is that I'm looking at the seven ways to make early morning writing a reality. You know, get accountable, set alarms, set your writing space up, make sure you go to bed a bit earlier, you know, listen to the alarm when it actually <laughs> goes off, um, mm. don't look at your phone and, you know, just get into that habit. It's about creating that early morning habit. But it is the one thing in my entire life that I have never, as far as my writing goes, that I have never managed to make work. I have never managed to get up early and be a writer. It is not how I work. Um, even, you know, if I've had deadlines or something, I've had things due, I've been up against the wall, I would rather stay up late. I would mm. rather do it until one or two in the morning the night before than get up at five to do it because if I have to get up at five to do it, I mm -hmm. won't do it. I won't get up. Um, mm. And I just wondered, you know, because I know that you are someone who can make yourself do these things yeah. what do you do like how do you make yourself get up to write and if you get up to write mm. are you just ready to go like yeah are you so I my first choice would be not to get up of course <laughs> because Always. I would also like you prefer to do it the night before but there have been certain instances where that's not been possible for whatever reason um or I've actually you know, stayed up and just had to go to bed or something. But yeah. I, my, my preference is definitely doing it the night before. But on some occasions when I've had to wake up early, um, obviously I wake up begrudgingly um, and I'll have my coffee or whatever. But I, ha I do have this weird thing where as soon as I sit at the keyboard, it's like something turns on in me. So it doesn't matter what time of day it is. If I'm, mm. if I'm in this environment, so I probably can't do it if I'm, I don't know, at down the road or whatever, but if I'm in this environment, I'm at, in my chair, I'm at the keyboard, it's like I'm in work mode and, and it doesn't matter what time of day it is, I can answer emails, I can write, I can, you know what I mean, focus. Yeah, no, I do get that because I do have that myself. That's about, you know, we've talked so many times about creating that habit mm. of, you know, having that place that you write and doing all those sorts of things. But um, I still, I just, my, you know, if I had to sit down and, and add a thousand words to a manuscript or 2000 words to a manuscript or whatever, mm. I just don't have, it's not when my, I just don't have, and you know, normally I would say, oh, the guests get started and the muse will turn up because we've had this conversation mm. as well. Yes, yes. But my muse seems to keep very similar sleeping patterns to me and but I But it's all about training, isn't it? Can't, if you had to do it, you know, you would. If you mm. really had to, it's all about training. Mm, I, probably, I, possibly. I, I anyway, think. I'd be interested to know um, 
in the podcast community, uh, in the Facebook group, if you, are you an early morning writer? And if you are an early morning writer, you know, how have you trained yourself to do this? Um, Or are you someone like me who just, no matter what you've tried, early mornings are not your jam when it comes to writing and creativity? Um, Let us know. Yeah, do let us know. And if you are new to this uh, podcast, do join us in our Facebook group. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. And it's such a great community of fantastic and supporting, um, supportive writers. So um, yeah, join us there. And also thank you to everyone so far who has given us feedback via our podcast listener survey. We would like to invite those of you who haven't yet uh done the survey to tell us what you think because if you do you can share your thoughts um, and go into the draw of winning three new book prizes the survey is open until the 31st of october 2020 so go to writerscenter.com.au survey and it's been so interesting to see some of the feedback so far we will give you a bit of a report after the 31st of october and we've had a chance to look at it but we'd love to hear what you think Now, also, coming up very soon, as we know, is November, right, Al? Right. And what happens in November? NaNoWriMo happens in November. NaNoWriMo. So it's almost upon us. And for those of you who aren't sure what NaNoWriMo is, Al, maybe you can explain. (laughs) Oh, why is it down to me to explain? (laughs) You started this conversation. Um. NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month, whereby you are challenged to join a community and write 50,000 words in 30 days in November. Yes. Now, that is quite a big undertaking. So for those of you who, you know, might not be ready to commit uh, to NaNoWriMo um, or if you potentially kind of think that you might experience NaNoWriMo FOMO because you know you won't be able to write 50,000 words in um, NaNoWriMo, but you're seeing everyone else taking part in the fun. Uh, Then we have the next best thing for you. And it's our 30-day motivational mojo month, which begins on the 1st of November. So it's for those of you who are not participating in NaNoWriMo and you want something a bit different without quite as big a, you know, goal is 50,000 words. So it's perfect for people who aren't necessarily writing a novel, but are still craving a month of creativity and writing momentum so you can be part of the fun. You'll join a fun community of other writers and unlock a new set of writing challenges, inspirational videos, and mindset topics every day in November. Our past students have been amazed at how many new story ideas have sprouted from their Mojo Month experience. So it's your last chance to join before the fun begins on the 1st of November. Have a look at writercenter.com.au slash mojo. That's writercenter.com.au slash mojo. All right, our competition this week. Speaking of crafting with cat hair, Al... (laughs) As we were. I have no idea how we got here, but yes, we were. Well, this isn't that book, but it is um, a book called What Cats Want by Dr. Yuki Hattori. And we have three copies of this book, What Cats Want. Japan's leading cat doctor tells you everything you need to know about feline behavior. Cats are so mysterious. Why do they feel the impulse to climb into tiny spaces? Why do they get that feverish energy at dusk? And for an owner, what is the best way to stroke them? 
Dr. Yuki Hattori is an internationally recognized specialist in feline behavior and can give the answers to all this and more. His guidance is well organized and practical with a different theme on each spread and humorous, clear illustrations showing exactly what to look for, including how to interpret your cat's meows, tail flicks, and facial expressions. Not only will getting along with your cat help it to live a long and contented life, but it will make you feel happy too. So if you want to win one of three copies, go to writerscentercomau slash win and um, follow the instructions. Entries close on the 2nd of November, writercentercomau slash win. Now, also, I know that this is a slightly different book to normal. We usually do something a little bit more literary, but hey, it's about cats. So I had to have it. <laughs> I didn't realise we were doing a full cat-themed week. We weren't really meant to. But following on from the theme. Following on from that, there's more. There's more. Are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, I don't know if I am after that introduction. (laughs) Okay. Zoolatry. Zoolatry. That's Z-O-O, like zoo, Uh, L-A-T-R-Y, but zoolatry. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. You might have to tell me more about it. <laughs> All right. You might think it might have something to do with the zoo. Mm. And there is a connection to animals, but it's similar to the word idolatry, which is the worship of idols. Zoolatry is the worship of animals traditionally. Mm. However, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it would also refer to the excessive attention to a domestic pet. Zoology. Have they met you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue, and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule, and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Let's hear from Sarah Clutton. Hi, I'm Sarah Clutton. I've written two novels that are domestic suspense novels, and I've done several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I sort of got to a stage in my life where I hit middle age, so I thought I'll um, start writing a novel and one day I woke up in the middle of the night and this idea for a novel dropped into my head. I got about 40,000 words into that novel and I realised I didn't know how to write a novel. I I tried to to take apart a lot of the novels I'd read and realised that I needed more help. I did it online because I live in a country town, so the online course suited me perfectly. The practical workshopping and all of the wonderful feedback we got from the other participants in the course was really excellent. I still workshop with a girl I met through that course who um, is a writer living in Stockholm. So that's been a wonderful collaboration as well. You learn so much about the inside business. What is really important in terms of flagging to uh, potential publishers, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to, to teach yourself things when you're not in an industry. You don't know what you don't know. 
been my friend in Sweden had been to the Stockholm Book Festival and she had some great experience listening to some publishers from Bookature who are um, uh, an arm of Hachette UK. They are one of the few that uh, take direct submissions. So I just sent it off to Bookature knowing that they had a great reputation and within two weeks I'd heard that they wanted to work with me. I got a two book deal with them and they were brilliant. So my first book is Good Little Liars. It's a mystery. It's set in Tasmania. The Write Your Novel course was brilliant um, and certainly I know that without it I wouldn't have gotten a book deal. So through the Australian Writers' Centre, um, I've discovered that um, to write a novel, it can take a village. So it's a bit like raising a child. You, you're sometimes too close to your own work and taking away the um, ego from your work and having it stripped down um, to in all its flaws and workshopped can make it so much better. And I've also learned that it, um, writing is an ongoing process of learning. So you can never learn enough and there's always something else to learn. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week, Al. I'm so excited that we are talking to Malcolm Knox. I have been a big fan of Malcolm Knox for a very long time, uh, ever since I read his first novel. Many people will recognise Malcolm's name as a journalist. He's written for the Sydney Morning Herald for decades. He's the former literary editor. He often writes about sport. He's um, written a whole bunch of novels, including A Private Man, um, The Wonder Lover, just to name a couple, but he's also written nonfiction and also ghostwritten. So we talk about all of those things. His latest book is Bluebird. Here's Malcolm Knox. Thanks so much for joining us today, Malcolm. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your latest book, Bluebird. For those readers who haven't read your book yet or haven't got their hands on a copy, can you tell them what it's about? Oh, um, so it's set in the present day uh, at a, um, a beach community, which is probably in a big city, a bit like Sydney, but not necessarily. And the, the setup is about um, a family man, Gordon Grimes is his name, um, immediately before the opening of the book's action, um, his wife Kelly uh, has uh, decided to leave him um, and the mechanism by which she has ended their marriage was to, um, to have a bit of a thing with Gordon's best mate. Um, uh, Gordon uh, doesn't want the marriage to end. Um, Kelly's had enough and um, her plan is to move into an old house that her family has owned for a long time which is basically a ruin. Uh, it overlooks Bluebird Beach. And um, this is her way, her pathway of, of getting out of the marriage. But her um, stepmother, uh, Leone, has manoeuvred uh, for Gordon to move into the lodge with her and their son, Ben, who's a teenager, and Gordon's 22-year-old goddaughter, Lou, who's turned up um, on their doorstep um, for the first time. So. In, in a way, it's Kelly's story, uh, although Gordon is our, our sort of central character and anti-hero, um, uh, because Kelly's the one who's initiated it all, uh, but she can't get away from him. And um, Gordon, not only has he, has he uh, landed in this place, this house 
um, the lodge where they live together um, is the the location for all of the main events of his life from his childhood onwards and mm. it's turned into a kind of a de facto clubhouse for all the ne'er-do-wells and other cronies of his local community um, and they all converge there and so poor Kelly um, she not only has she not escaped from her husband she's not escaped from all of his mates as well um, and mm. she's trapped there um, Gordon sees himself as the steward of this um, this this crumbling wreck of a house um, in in a you know it's a perfect place overlooking a beach but it's also being overrun by by gentrification by progress in short and um, Gordon uh, takes it on as his mission to to save this place and to preserve this last little shred of old bluebird mm. um, but he can't he doesn't have he doesn't have the financial resources he doesn't have the uh, emotional resources he, he he's um, he's completely incapable of, of hanging on to this thing he's been given but of course he can't let go of it either um, this situation drives those around him including Kelly and Ben and Lou to do more and more desperate things to help him um, but their their acts to help him um, uh, you, you know, doing everybody more damage than good. So that's a, in one <laughs> breath. That's the, that's the, that's the setup. <laughs> so, how did this the idea for this book form? Did you start off with the plot? Did you start off with the community and the characters because they're so strong? Where did it start in your head? It, it probably started more with the type of book I wanted to write. I, I had a, a really um, a kind of a burning desire to to write a kind of a big old-fashioned novel um, mm. that had lots of characters, you know, a main plot but lots of subplots that had plenty of humour, um, uh, you know, vivid setting and just something for people to get their teeth into uh, and, you know, read in the way that they would read their favourite, um, you know, door stoppers or 19th century mm. novels. And, and so that, that, was, that was the thing um, that was really um, going on inside me. Um, and I, I suppose the, the character and the scenario attached themselves um, to that initial desire. Mm. And then the, the place itself, um, it, it was based, the lodge was actually based on a, a house that I would see uh, most days down at my local beach, um, which was a wreck of a house perched on, perched on the side of a cliff um, that was sort of this impossible dwelling um just like a lot of a lot of beachside places it shouldn't have even been there um mm. but somehow it was um so yeah these things all um kind of married up together uh inside me and um uh, you know uh, eight, 18 drafts later here it is wow now just as an aside i was convinced that house was at freshwater was it can you just confirm or deny that <laughs> your your instincts are very good was um, it freshwater? Yeah, yeah. The the house has actually been done up now. It got done up, I think, about five, eight years ago, something like that. Right. Um, so you go down there now, and the house doesn't look too bad. Um, mm -hmm. but for years and years, it, it really did look like it was about to, you know, there was a strong, mm. it was going to fall off the side of the cliff. So a lot of this, well, it opens, you know, very much with this community of uh, people who go to the beach 
all the time they're um, men and women but a lot of men in, in their 50s and they've reached a certain age in life and of course I'm reading it going oh my god well that's Martin that's my mate John that's so and so you know what I mean and I want to give the book to each of them and say read this you're in it <laughs> so but it made me think Malcolm Knox must spend an awful time a lot of time at the beach is that true <laughs> more than more than is good for him yeah um <laughs> That's true. And, uh, you know, when you talk about models of characters, there is a bunch of guys uh, who have grown up at Freshwater Beach and there and, and they are sort of archetypes because every beach and even non-beach communities have, have men like this. And yeah. um, I don't actually know them. Um, uh, I've been in the surf with them and I've sort of studied them, um, mm. but I don't know anything about them. And I've, I've created if I've created lookalikes for them, um, uh, people who, who do have have similar physical characteristics. But of course, I don't know anything about the actual lives of of those people. The, the mm. real. Um, so yeah, there's this weird uh, sense of an impending reckoning for me where somebody's going to buttonhole me down <laughs> the beach and say you you, you, you got me all wrong <laughs> well how did you know I had an affair <laughs> yeah I know even worse <laughs> so okay you say you don't know them but these characters are so real you you say you've studied them from afar but what did you study them just from an anthropological point of view or because you were going to write a book about them? Yeah, no, no, pure, purely um, in a daydreaming sense. Um, right. And, you know, as, as you do when, when you're writing, you kind of reach for what is to hand. So, no, I didn't have any intention of, of writing a book that I would put these sort of strange local characters in. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was writing... Um, uh, you know, bits of dialogue, bits of, of character, you know, would, would just come to me from either inside or outside. And, um, you know, th this is how this is how characters get made. Um, mm. but, 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 you know, it, they're also, there are, there are um, an amalgamation of other things as well. And so, for instance, the interior of the lodge was um, in, almost totally invented by me um, mm -hmm. and I was putting stuff in there, putting furniture in there, putting features in there. And when my wife first read it, um, which is about the eighth or ninth draft, she said, have you based this on Nana's house? And oh. she, she grew up in her Nana's house, which was down the south coast. Um, oh. And it was also, also a, um, you know, it, with all due respect, it was a, it was a pretty um, run down um, uh, sort of a house that had just been made up as they went along over decades. And um, mm. I said, no, no, I hadn't thought of Nana's house at all. But now that you mention it, there are about five different architectural features from Nana's house that we've got to get into this place. So, wow. Uh, yeah, and you know that's that's how characters um, get at least these characters of mine got created as well that mm. um, you know bits, bits from those local people quite a few bits from friends of mine um, bits of secondhand stories I've heard and so on. So when you decided I want you want to write this great novel and um, and you decided on your premise or, or your character um, 
What happened then? Did you know what was going to roll out in the story or did the story reveal itself to you as you started writing? I, I did a fair bit of planning, um, mm. which is not like me. I'm not, not normally a planner. Uh, my normal way of composing novels has been to know the beginning and know the ending but mm. not know anything in between. Um, in this case, I, I did some pretty thorough planning because the the story does have a lot of characters, and if 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 you don't plan, um, it'll it'll very quickly spin out of out of control and, and lose its shape. Um, but you know that said, I, I I did the first four drafts based on that plan um, that I that I had made, and the plan was several pages long. You know, probably about a ten page a detailed ten page plan. Um, once I'd got to about that fourth draft stage and I thought I'd pretty much nailed it, uh, I showed it to a friend and he immediately spotted some very wonky um, wonky elements, plot strands that went nowhere, mm. bits that contradicted themselves, one main piece of plot that, that he just said I shouldn't do at all. Oh. And he was right in, in every, in every uh, aspect of what he said. Um, he was right. So, and this, this repeated itself with um, two or three readers I used in, in the drafting process um, of, when I say I use, I ask for the, the fruits <laughs> of their, their experience. Um, uh, and so it, it got reshaped quite a lot um, away from that initial plan into, into what, it, you know, what arrived at the very end of the process. Mm-mm. And it is, you, you live in the Northern Beaches and it is clearly based in the Northern Beaches and it's in the book it's referred to as the Northern Beaches. But it is a fictional, Bluebird is the beach, and mm. it is a fictional beach. And, um, you know, uh, you refer to Capri, which is uh, the equivalent of a manly, I'm, I'm assuming. Mm. Why did you decide to do that and not actually refer to them as freshwater or, or manly or, you know, actual places? Yeah, um, well, partly because I changed enough things um, uh, which needed to be changed for my story mm. that then I couldn't call it freshwater because there was this, you know, <laughs> this sitting here and it's not there in real life and, and mm. there's a here which is not there in real life. So um, the, the, the story, the needs of the story took over and, um, you know, you don't want to, as a novelist, you don't want to be so bound to, um, uh, you know, verisimilitude that you can't tell your story the way you want to, um, and and beyond that, uh, you know maybe maybe this was my um, outsized ambition speaking, but I did hope that it was going to say something a little bit more general um, than uh, you know you would general more general than local and. Um, I wanted a reader to be able to say, well, this, this could be Torquay or it could be Mornington yeah. um, or it could be the Gold Coast or it could be Batemans Bay or it could be um, somewhere off, uh, you know, north of Perth or, or in mm. Perth. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe, as I said, maybe, maybe that's over-ambitious for a novelist to say that, but um, that, that was certainly my hope. 
So this is your sixth novel. Is it sixth? Um, it's it's the sixth in, in my, my name. I did a, I did another novel uh, under a pseudonym a few years ago. Okay, and um, what was that? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's a it's a, a crime uh, thriller called The Endangered List, um, and the author's name is Brian Westlake. Cool. Okay. So this is your seventh novel, but you combine since uh, your first one, Summerland, which was in 2000 and oh my God, what an amazing book. Um, uh, then that was your first one. I read it and went, I want to grow up and be Malcolm Knox. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but you combine all of that with writing non-fiction books, but also writing as a, as a journalist. Can you just take us back to when you knew you wanted to become a writer? Was it at school? Was it later? You know? Um, definitely not at school. Um, uh, I was more of a maths kid at school. Maths was my favourite subject. Um, and I loved reading. I was always a huge reader, but I didn't particularly like English at school uh, oh. and, and, and never had an interest in creative writing. Uh, where, where it really came about was in the sort of very end of my teens, early 20s, um, and it, it came about essentially through reading. Um, uh, I, I kind of graduated from... The, the sort of pulp fiction I'd, I'd gobbled up all through my childhood and, and adolescence to um, particularly the great French uh, novelists, French and Russian novelists of the 19th century um, that I became completely addicted to around the age 19, 20, 21. And that, that just, you know, that, that character um, moulding period of your life um, mm. uh, after after you finish school and you're entering your 20s and you're wondering who you are. Um, for me, the shape that took was to, to throw me off the, the course that I was apparently on, um, onto, onto a different course, which was to, to drop out of um, the law school at uni where, where I was enrolled to announce to my parents, um, I, okay, that's it. I'm giving all that up. I want to be a novelist. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, well, I don't need to sketch my parents in too much detail, but this came as something of a shock. <laughs> uh, and there were no, there were no novelists in our family or you know in in anywhere near our community. It was a, it was a, a strange thing to declare that you wanted to do, and they sort of. Said, mm, okay, right. <laughs> you know, we can't stop you. Yeah. Um, uh, um, and I then spent my twenties, most of my twenties, beavering away, trying to turn myself into novelist and 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 actually writing novels that never got published and never saw the light of day. But I finished um, half a dozen uh, novels. Wow. Over, over, over that ten year period, which was my apprenticeship, was that was that like something that you did on the side while you worked as a journalist full time? No, I wasn't a journalist yet. I, I didn't become a journalist until oh. in, the, in the late late twenties. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do um, for work, so I was just doing um, different uh, part time jobs or shift type jobs through that period. Um, because I, I had dedicated myself to this, um, you know, yeah. exotic 
pursuit um, that I wasn't game to really own up to publicly or show anybody what I was doing. But I, that was all I wanted to do. To, um, it was be a novelist. And, um, wow. Yeah. So those yeah. those six novels that were your apprenticeship, did you try to get them published? Uh, one of them I entered in a. It might have been the Vogel. I entered it in a, in mm-hmm. a competition. Um, it didn't didn't. You know, it got sent straight back to me uh, with a, with a form letter. Um, but no, the the I think the sixth. It was certainly the last of that period. I, I finally got the um, gumption to show it to another person and then sent it to a publisher who said who gave me some encouragement, but she said, "No, you know, it's really not not working." Um, and my reply to her was to say. Oh, but there's this other one that I'm nearly finished and that I've started since then. Um, can I send that to you? And that was what turned out to be Summerland. Oh, okay. Now, okay, so you're doing various uh, random jobs while you're pursuing life as a novelist, but how in the world then did you become right about cricket for the <laughs> Sydney Morning Herald? i just trying to get how that yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, a bit accidentally. My, my whole journalistic career has been a bit of a, a, a sequence of accidents. Um, and so I, I lucked into a, into a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald when I was about 27, 28. Uh, oh. And um, a year or two later, um, the cricket writer had retired. They tried to get big name cricket writers from the UK to come over. Um, they'd failed to do so. And um, the editor in chief was having a, a conversation with um, with a, a senior journalist there. And he said, you know, basically, we don't, there's a tour going to Sri Lanka next week and we don't have a cricket writer. And the senior, the senior guy, John Huxley, said, oh, that kid over there, he knows a bit about cricket. Um, why don't you ask him? And that, that, that was me and that, that was how I became um, oh a cricket writer. But then, you know, I was, I was a cricket reporter for, for three and a half, four years then and just then got out of cricket, got out of sport completely for more than a decade. Um, so from 2000 to 2011, I did other things at the paper and mm. uh, uh, didn't get back into, into cricket and, you know, sport until the last few years. So when you, um, you you published Summerland in 2000 and then the next book, I think, A Private Man in 2004, but during that time you were literary editor um, Mm. at Fairfax. Does that come with a whole lot of pressure and especially when you want to be a novelist yourself? You know, when you want to write novels yourself. Yeah, yeah it was, it, it, it's difficult. And um, uh, I only did that for about three years. Uh, and I, I think the years were 2001 till 2004 that I was literary editor. And I wasn't quite comfortable with um, uh, mm. the fact that I had a, a, an upcoming novel. And I, I loved being literary editor, but... You're kind of in the sausage factory uh, mm. when you're doing that, and you're seeing you're seeing books, you know, just get pumped through your office um, every day, and it, it it has a slightly demoralising effect to, um, to 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 know to know that your you know your your baby 
uh, your novel, your firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, whatever, is actually just one of a, an enormous box full of books that uh, is churned through this week and then there'll be another box next week and so on. <laughs> But did the experience give you any insight, because you were right at the coalface of publishing, did the experience give you any insight into either the mechanics and marketing of of publishing or, because you had access to so many books, the the kinds of stories that worked and didn't? Um, to a degree, but... Uh, yeah, a literary editor doesn't really know that stuff. Um, they're, they're marshalling a lot of reviewers and, mm. um, uh, you know, putting putting reviews out for the public. They, they don't actually know much about sales or what works or um, that they can form personal impressions about what works for them um, or what works for their reviewers. But... Um, you're not particularly in touch with uh, with with the commerce um, of books. You, most literary editors don't know what what is selling well and what's not selling well, um, and and nor should they. They they should be doing something mm. very specific for for their readership. That that's who their duty is to. It's it's, it's to their readers, not to um, anybody else. So yeah, it gave me an insight, but. Um, I, I felt particularly at that stage of my novel writing career, I, I didn't want to be too part of the industry in that sense. Um, like I say, it's it's just you, you can easily tip over to a point where you realise this is this is just product coming through. Wow. Um, uh, and, and it can, for me, I felt it, it could endanger my little, you know, precious core um, creative being or whatever you want to call it inside me. Wow. So you almost felt it was more of a hindrance than a help. Um, look, it, it it was nice to make new friends and, and I, I met a lot of new people who, who I really liked and I'd always had the idea coming from the outside that, you know, literary people and writers, they were wankers and um, they were all, you know, always at each other, backstabbing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and my experience in those years was I just met lots and lots of fantastic people, um, authors, publishers, people in the industry, and that, that was really nice. Um, but as a, as a writer, yeah, I, I, felt, I felt it was a threat. Wow. Okay. So what it did do though, being literary editor was it won you a Walkley, well, not being literary editor, but during that time you broke the explosive story about Norma Curie. And if there's young people listening to this, go Google it. I remember reading the story as it broke in, in the Herald and just, you know, jaw on table kind of thing. What's your feeling to that experience was it just part of your job was it exhilarating was it sad was it is it something you're proud of yeah um, it, it was a bit scary for a time because I I didn't know how far out of my depth I'd got and there, there were some quite shady characters associated with with Norma mm. um, and there was a point where supposedly threats threats were made uh, against me, and I had oh to be had to be protected. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I hasten to add that 
it turned out that those threats were probably not authentic. Um, but but everybody was on edge, everybody meeting myself, some people at the paper and people at Random House, um, who was Norman's publisher, yeah. who were also at the time my publisher. Uh, oh so that, my was, that was a bit difficult. Um, but, yeah, it, I'm, I'm afraid my experience of journalism, whenever I've um, been involved in a, in a big breaking story like that, is just sheer terror yeah. um, that, that I've got something wrong. Uh, oh. Uh, you know, and and that was, I remember Nikki Gemmell um, at the time commenting on it. Uh, she said that I was either going to sort of go to jail for for um, serious defamation, or you know, be liable for a multi million dollar payout, um, <laughs> or, or you know, win a Walkley. Um, so it was it was one or the other, and and being at the centre of that, I was I was much more conscious of the. Um, the dangers of having got something wrong, yes. Uh, uh, then you know, feeling oh gee, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good for having done that. But so I felt very proud about it later once it was all settled down. Right. Um, but it was all a bit, it was all a bit nerve wracking at the time, and it, it was very exciting. It was, um, uh, you know, again, uh, there's no point going into it in depth, but but I was really, really lucky with a with a series of kind of flukes and um, mm. people helping me and just things that fell in my lap that, um, you know, another little branching of reality would not have happened. Mm. Um, and and Norma, Norma would have, you know, published another three or four books about her life uh, in the Middle East and nobody would have been any the wiser. When you're following something as huge as that and obviously taking up a lot of emotional, you know, and brain space, can you write novels um, at the same time? Did you? Yeah, definitely not um, uh, at the peak of that. The, the, that story was quite amazing because it was in the paper every day for about a month, a new, yeah. a new development, um, and that emotional peak you're talking about stretched over about two or three months um, and no definitely not um, uh, although during that period I did come across the story that became the germ of um, my next novel which was Jamaica um, but you know to, to illustrate how long that took it was 2004 when uh, this was happening and 2007 when Jamaica was published. So it wasn't mm. until a couple of years later that I really got moving on that. So tell me now, how do you, what's your daily mix or might not be daily, but what's your mix of writing? Because you do so many different types of writing. What is it that you focus on now apart from novels? Um, it used to be, uh, so I, I focus on my journalism, which I'm still doing um, for the Herald, but that's only that's only kind of a part-time thing. Um, I've been writing non-fiction. I've been, I've been ghosting a book this year um, and doing various other bits and pieces. Um, in, in those early days, meaning 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I could divide the day up into different types of work. Now, now I'm much more. I'll do a block, a block of this, and run with that for as long as I can, and then stop and do a block of, you know, novel writing. So, for instance, a block for, meaning like weeks or something. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so with Bluebird, I think the the whole period of Bluebird was about two and a half years, um, and that would have meant going hill for leather for a month, um, then taking a month and a half off, then going hill for leather for a month, taking right. a month, and and when I say taking a month off, that means moving on to to other um, other books or other work. Mm. Um, so as as I get older, I'm far less um, uh, flexible in uh, just being able to switch from one thing to another. Uh, I've I found with age, you know, once I'm riding with one thing, I can't stop and won't stop and I'll just ride it for as far as I can. So when you are going hell for leather, so you're in the depths of, you know, your, your manuscript, what does your day look like? I'm assuming it starts at the beach. <laughs> well, depending, on, depending on conditions, yeah, um, because, uh, you know, surf conditions don't answer to my, um, my <laughs> timetabling needs and uh, uh, that comes first if, it, uh, if, if, you know, things offer themselves. Sure. From above. Um, but take me through the rest of your day. I just want to see if you have a routine or whether you have any writing rituals or whether you adhere to certain hours or word count, something like that. No, no, um, nothing like that. Um, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty obsessive. So um, if if I'm in novel writing mode, I'll um, I'll go probably through the morning pretty hard for about four hours. This is if I haven't had time or you know if, if, if the surf's not good um uh, i'll go about four hours and then um have a break and give it another hour or two in the afternoon but i don't work in the evenings anymore i used mm-hmm. to but now if i work in the evenings i can't sleep um, oh yeah uh, i think that's a young person's game to <laughs> work in the evenings um uh so that but but the intensity with which i work means that if if I've done a good four or five hours in a day, that's as much as I'm going to get out of myself. And do you aim for a word count or do you have an average word count that you achieve in your four or five hours? No, no, um, Mm. but I I tend to be a pretty fast writer um, in in that first draft stage. Uh, I, I, you know, really pump it out. uh, and because I think I think momentum is everything, and sustaining a mood or a voice um, or a tone is the hardest thing in writing a novel. Um, so I don't want to interrupt that. Um, uh, but no, I don't. I don't have any kind of set target uh, per day. I'll, I'll just go until I until I sort of burn out at some point. You know. So you said that you're ghostwriting a book at the moment and presumably you can't tell us who you're ghostwriting that for, but when you do that, well, first of all, why do you enjoy ghostwriting? I'm assuming you do. And when you do that, what's your process to, you know, to, you know just to interview people first or what's the actual process? Yeah, that, that is actually, you know, unlike unlike writing a novel uh, where we pretend um, we're, that I have a process, um, uh, ghostwriting does actually have a process which which revolves around interviewing um, mainly the, the 
subject of the book, the voice of the book, and um, getting getting their voice down. And I do all my own transcribing. I don't outsource that um, because I think it's really important for me to understand their voice um, and just the the um, donkey work of transcribing hours and hours of, of tape is really good for, for you know internalizing their way of their way of speaking and their way of thinking um, mm. and then that turns into it's different with every person but that that turns into a um, a long process of bouncing it backwards and forwards between you and the person uh, this most recent one um, the the subject was very involved uh, and, and and we did maybe six different bounce backs of the whole manuscript um mm. uh, uh but I, I have done other ones where there's there's been at best one um uh, and, and and one one that i did uh with bart cummings the late um oh, yeah. trainer bart never actually read it um, <laughs> his wife read it val mate um uh, and she gave very good feedback but uh mm. yeah it was too much for for bart but um yeah, at the other end of that process, there are there are people um, who who are very very carefully attached to their book, and they take pride in mm. it. And, uh, you know, they all you are is their amanuensis. You're you're not them, and and that's why you, meaning me, I don't mm. have my name on their books. Do you start with you know birth when the when you're doing the interview, or do you start with something? you know, meaty and interesting in later in life? Um, the sequence of interviewing can be quite random, yeah. Um, I, I always think that um, chronology, and it may not be birth, it may be really interesting things in their family history before they mm, were born. Mm. Um, I think it's a good default position. And these are, these are you know, commercial autobiographies. So they're, they're written... To, to get a story out there for a, for a mass audience. Um, and I do think that simple, there's a reason the simple way of story, storytelling has lasted so long. It's because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to screw with it. It, it. it works best because that's what turns the pages. What, what happened next um, mm. to the person? Um, but that said, once you, once you begin shaping it into a, um, uh, you know, a book, uh, you very often have an opening chapter or a prologue where you have the most, uh, you know, life-threatening or peak moment mm. of a person's life. It may be the thing they're most famous for, what happened. Just get in into their skin during that drama um, and you can have that as your prologue, and then you go back in the backstory and return to it later. There are there are lots of ways you can cut it up. Mm. You you obviously, I mean, you've done several. So, what do you enjoy about it? Um, I, I I in most cases, I've really enjoyed the people I've worked with. Uh, I, I've liked um, the the people I've ghosted for, and. Uh, sometimes they've been they've been unforgettable um, people. Bart Cummings being one. Um, ben Cummins, Ben Cousins was another. Um, I ghosted for and Ben. Ben uh, is an amazing person. I really uh, liked getting to know him um, uh, very well. Um, and others too. You know, I think that's the that's the main. Um, uh, appeal of it, uh, mm -hmm. and also, also, you know, you're doing a service. You're helping, you're helping somebody who can't write a book mm. get their book 
out there. And, and everyone around them is really proud of them and pleased for them. And um, they often get a lot of readers. So, you know, you, you, you're helping somebody who can't do something, you're helping them to do it. That's, that's nice. What kind of time frame is um, involved? Like, for example, X amount of time for the interviewing, then X amount for the first draft, and then X amount for the to and fro kind of thing? Again, that varies, but uh, I, in, in my experience, the interviewing, the amount of tape um, uh, has varied between about minimum 30 to 40 hours, maximum 80 to 100 hours. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the, the working period has been no more than one year. Uh, sometimes it's been shorter than that. It's been more like six or eight months. But um, a year, you should be able to do it in a year. Sometimes you can't because the person goes overseas or uh, when people were able to go overseas um, or they have, a, a you know, some commitments that hold them up. But you should be able to get it done within a 12-month period. But is that a year in Malcolm time where you do the blocks of this, of a month of this and then a month of something else and a month of this and a month of something else? Yeah, well, that, that's that's a calendar year. So that'll be a year where, where I'm um, exactly putting putting in blocks of time um, mm. over, over a 12-month calendar period. So just to stick with the time frame kind of um, line of questioning, you said that this book, sorry, your latest novel, Bluebird, um, took two and a half years of the on-off time. Was that for first draft or did that include all 18 drafts? That includes the whole lot. I, th- I think the first draft um, probably took me about four or five months um, that's okay. a yes. Uh, uh, I can't quite remember. Um, but when I say first draft, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty slapdash with first draft. I, I do it quickly, and um, there's a lot, a lot of mess in there. Um, it was, I, I think, it was about twelve, fifteen months before I had that draft that I, I could show another person. And then, mm. and then another another twelve months on top of that. Of um, each time, you know, I didn't show it to a bunch of people and take all of their feedback and work on that. I did it successively, mm. uh, so that person one, um, I I took all of his feedback and did another draft before I sent it to wow. person two and so on. Yeah. Um. Bluebird has a lot of characters, although it never feels that way. It never feels overwhelming because they're so well-defined. Did you uh, just keep them in your head in terms of fleshing them out and in terms of characterization, or did you have dossiers on them so that you knew, you know, he wore a red cap and he did this and she does that, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, no, I, I didn't keep any any kind of dossier. I'm, I'm a sort of an, I'm a bit of a note taker sporadically, um, but I'm not one of those writers who's um, you know sitting in the corner of, of cafes with their notebook uh, uh, eavesdropping. Um, I will occasionally eavesdrop, but not in any um, planned or systematic way. <laughs> um, 
Of course uh, you eavesdrop. <laughs> <laughs> you must. Yeah, yeah, but I don't go out with my eavesdropping notebook in my All right. <laughs> I claim, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just an innocent eavesdropper. Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 so the characters, um, Gordon was, was really, really clear in my head because mm. I guess he's a he's a sort of alter ego of of myself and um uh Kelly and Ben um were also very clear to me. It's it's the smaller um side characters that um sort of add texture to a story but aren't at the centre of the story. The smaller ones are, are almost the hardest to keep distinct in that mm. way. Um and so you've got to do You've got to do more with fewer words when you're talking minor characters because you need to keep them vivid, um, but but you've only got a few words to do it with. Whereas with Gordon, you've got as many words as you want to 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 make him the way he is. Mm. With um the mix of things that you do, what do you enjoy the most? Writing fiction, you know, the freedom of writing fiction, the the structure of writing nonfiction, like your nonfiction books, um, ghost writing where it's not, <laughs> you know, you're doing it for someone else, your, your journalism, what do you enjoy the most? Um, uh, yeah, in, enjoy is a um, loaded word. Uh, mm. You could also ask what do I hate the most um, and I could, so, yeah. <laughs> in all of them, there there are things that I hate and there are things that I love, um, uh, but but they're different in in mm. each of those modes. Um, definitely because of that stuff we were talking about earlier. Writing writing novels is the the thing closest to my heart, and mm. uh, it's what I take most pride in, and it's 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 the way I identify myself. Um, uh, everything else sort of feels like a, a part-time add-on to to that main um, hmm. trunk, uh, if you like. They're, they're all they're all branches, and I, I I think I've been a bit lucky as a as a journalist, and a bit lucky in other ways. Whereas with novel writing, I, I really feel I've earned whatever um, hmm. pleasure pleasure I've given readers. Um, hmm. I've earned that hard. Um, uh, whereas the other stuff, you, you know, I've been I've been privileged and fortunate. Um, uh, so it it's definitely it doesn't really answer what's what I enjoy most. But writing novels is the most meaningful thing to me, and um, it it does give me the moments of greatest pleasure. I think. What was the most challenging thing about writing Bluebird? Um. Probably what what you referred to before, which is just keeping keeping everything uh, working together when mm. there are so many different characters and different little lines of of plot, yeah. and that was what in that long drafting process was the most difficult thing. Um, people would say, "Okay, you fixed this, but now you've left that as a complete mess. It needs tidying up." Um, and I, I had this incredible line editor Ali Laveau who um, was so uh, immersed in this book that she knew stuff that I'd forgotten and she pointed out little contradictions and um, uh, you know just just keeping keeping your entanglements from <laughs> from 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 choking you um, mm. you know because it is it is a complicated 
plot, but if it gets overcomplicated, then it's, it's no fun for the reader and no fun for yourself. So that that was something that was really challenging um, because I hadn't done it before. I'd never done a really broad, sweeping novel like this before. Mm. And what was the most rewarding thing? Um, I've got to say there, there were there were moments through the drafting process where I thought, oh, that is such a priceless story or a line that I've heard. I'm so glad I've got that into a book and I hope, mm. I hope people like the book. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, the sense at the end of it that I'd put everything that I've got into a novel and I'd never quite had that before. I think I had that with Summerland, but I had a lot less when, when I wrote that. It, 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 that got me totally, um, but my totality was a lot less at the age of 30, yes. 31. It 30. sounds like this exhausted you. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like that, and it, and it, it did exhaust me, but in a good way. I, I really mm. felt like I've, I've put everything I know about writing a novel and everything, everything that is good about me as a novelist has gone into this one. And finally then, what would be your top three writing tips to listeners who want to be in a position where you are one day? <laughs> um, uh, if they saw me now, they wouldn't want to be in my position, <laughs> literally. Um, but uh, persistence is the, is the main thing. Um, yes. never, never give up and you'll want to give up so often um, and you'll think you're the you're you're suffering in a way that nobody has ever <laughs> suffered um, and that's the other I guess another tip is that is that everything you are going through somebody else has been through um, so listen listen to the experience of others and it will help you find a way out um, reading reading is the other thing you know I, I, I constantly read and I just can't see how you can be a good writer without um, without reading uh, you know, without without limit, um, uh, and and I you know I still read as much as I read when I was twenty years old and fired up and inspired and wanting to be a novelist. Um, so there. Those are, is that two or three? Um, That's great. You know, persistence, listening to others and reading. That's perfect. Yeah. Congratulations on Bluebird and thank you so much for your time today, Malcolm. Thanks, Valerie. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Malcolm Knox. I could talk to him for ages. Anyway, Al, what are, we're almost at the end of the episode. What are you doing in the coming week? Um, well, I've got, actually I've got a uh, an event on Thursday night. It's a um, you know via Zoom cool. with where the Wild Things Are Bookshop in Brisbane, um, and I'm going to be talking with uh, on a panel with Leon Tanner and Kate oh, Gordon, great. and we're going to be talking about like fantasy, mystery, adventure in mm-hmm. in children's novels. Um, you know what the role is. You know what they add. What you know all of those kinds of things. We're just going to be talking about. Um, you know that the elements, those elements in in kid lit, basically. So, um, if you are writing um, for children, or you you know love reading for children, or you just want to come along and say hi, um, mm. it's on the 29th of October. It's at 6:30 p.m. Sydney time. And if you have a look at my Facebook page at Alison Tate 
writer, uh, all the event details are, are actually there. So it would be awesome to see, you know, some of the So You Want to Be a Writer community come along to that. So yes. um, that's what I'll be doing. Fantastic. Uh, all right, great. So um, anything else exciting happening in our world now that book week is over and life is um, to normal? No, to be honest with you, I'm just I'm having a bit of a regroup uh, moment at the moment. I'm, I'm, I've, I've submitted uh, the second Maven and Reef mystery to my publisher and I'm waiting to hear, you know, what the structural edit might look like for that. Um, and I am, I have another manuscript that is also sort of out, you know, on submission and I'm just, I'm just having a little bit of a breather. It's been a Mm. fairly, um, tumultuous year or two. So I'm just kind of thinking about what my next thing might be. Um, so I was going to do NaNoWriMo, but I'm not doing it now. I've just decided. Yeah, I've just decided to give my poor old brain a bit of a yes, bit of a break from that, um, and we'll see. I'm not quite sure what what my next thing. I'm doing a lot of reading. I think um, you know that's what I tend to. My default position when I'm not writing something is just to voraciously consume books. Yes. So I'm working on on that at the moment. Um, what about you? What are you up to? Apart well, from pro- cello. Clearly. Well, yeah, probably playing the cello badly, mm. um, and hoping that I'm going to be not so bad. Yeah, mm. yeah, right. yeah. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Altate, A L T A I T. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you will find me at my home on the internet at alisontate.com, A L L I S O N T A I T. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.